the fourth episode, we had uh, Bloom leaving the house, or at least listening to the bells. We knew it was a quarter to nine, and he says, poor Dignam. Hey-ho, hey-ho. At the opening of the fifth episode, we find him on Sir John Rogerson's key, without any indication as to how he got there. By lorries along Sir John Rogerson's key, Mr. Bloom walks soberly, past Windmill Lane, Leasks, the Lindsay Crushers, the Postal Telegraph Office. We presume that he came straight down Gardner Street to the Custom House over Butt Bridge and walked down the keys to Sir John Rogerson's Key. From there, he walks into Hanover Street, up towards Townsend Street, into Lombard Street. We don't know exactly what he's doing. He seems to be dawdling along. And it's interesting to see that some of the things, at least one of the companies that he sees, the Undertaker's Nichols, is still there, still undertaking. He comes to the corner, crosses over to Western Row, and looks in a tea shop. Again, he seems to be wasting time. You don't know what he's doing. So he looks around, crosses the road to a post office, from the curbstone, he darted a keen glance through the door of the post office. Too late, Box. Post here. No one. In. He handed the card through the brass grill. Are there any letters for me? He asked. While the postmistress searched the pigeonhole, he gazed at the recruiting poster with soldiers of all arms on parade and held the tip of his baton against his nostrils, smelling fresh-printed rag paper. It turns out that he's getting a letter there which is addressed to Henry Flower, care of Western Row Post Office. The post office is still remembered only by one thing. There's still a pillar box in the street where the post office used to be. He puts the letter in his pocket, comes out and turns right and walks into a fellow called McCoy, whose wife has pretensions to be a singer just like Molly but Bloom has no regard for her at all. Now, whether Mrs. McCoy was any good or not, we don't know, so we only have Bloom's assessment of her abilities, which are pretty dismal. And McCoy has the unfortunate habit of borrowing things and not giving them back, and Bloom feels that he's going to ask for a loan of his Bloom's valise and is having none of it at all. My missus has just got an engagement... But he's not settled yet. Valise tack again, by way of no harm. I'm off that, thanks. They talk about Dignam's funeral, so we find out that this is where he's going. And Bloom, while he's only half listening to McCoy, is looking across the road at the Grosvenor Hotel. It used to be there, it's demolished now. A man and a woman come out and are going to get up on what we call an outside car, the things you still see only in Killarney. Anyway, he's there anticipating seeing the lady's ankle or maybe some of her calf when she's getting onto the car. Watch, watch, silk flesh, rich stockings, white watch. And it's coming nearer and nearer. She's going to do it. And just as she's getting onto the car, a tram comes between them. And, of course, Bloom is again frustrated. A heavy tram car honking his gong slewed between. Lost it! Curse your noisy pug nose. Feels locked out of it. Paradise and the Perry. Always happening like that, the very moment. But anyway, he gets rid of McCoy, 
sees where he's going and goes the opposite way. He turns right again down towards Cumberland Street. He goes down past the hazard of the Javis who are there waiting for fares because uh, Western Road Station was then quite an important railway station. It was important enough to have a, a row of cabs waiting outside for fares. He passes them, turns right again into Lombard Street, uh, Cumberland Street at least, and takes out his letter and reads it. And it, it turns out that it's from a lady called Martha, with whom he's having an illicit epistolary <laughs> affair, I suppose. Uh, an affair by letter. They've never met. And he has no intention of meeting her. And seemingly they've had some correspondence. And she's getting rather impatient with him and wants to meet him. And he's saying, that, no, she encloses a flower with it. And he puts the flower in his pocket and tears up the envelope very carefully and throws it away, but keeps the letter. Dear Henry, I got your last letter to me and thank you very much for it. I am sorry you did not like my last letter. Why did you enclose the stamps? I am awfully angry with you. I do wish... And then he goes in the side door of the church, where we are, and we are more or less standing outside. And the strange thing about Bloom is, although he appears to have been a Catholic, he doesn't know what's going on. He has no understanding, no appreciation of what's going on. Anyway, when Mass is over, he comes out the front door, which is where we are standing, turns left and walks down towards Lincoln Place into a, a chemist's shop there, which is still called Sweeney's. And there he buys lemon soap and orders lotion for his wife, Molly. He comes out, and he has a paper under his arm, and Bantam Lines comes from a pub across the road, which is now, I think, Kennedy's, it's called. It's on the corner of Lincoln Place and Westland Row. And Bantam Lines wants to see the runners in the gold cup. Bloom looks at him, says he needs a shave, that he really should wash, and he wants to get rid of him, and he says, keep the paper, I was going to throw it away. Bantam Lyons raised his eyes suddenly and leered weakly. What's that? His sharp voice said. I say you can keep it, Mr Bloom answered. I was going to throw it away that moment. Bantam Lyons doubted an instant, leering, then thrust the outspread sheets back on Mr Bloom's arms. I'll risk it. Here, Thanks. Unfortunately for Bloom, there's a horse called Throwaway in the race, and Bantam Lines takes this to be a tip for the horse. And this is going to get Bloom, if I can anticipate something, into trouble later in the day. Bloom walks up towards Leinster Street, greets Mr Hornblower, who is a porter on the back gate of Trinity College. He notes that the college races are on that day, and he walks on towards Leinster Street where he's going to a Turkish bath and he anticipates having the Turkish bath and relaxing in it. And that's where we leave him at the end of episode five. Enjoy a bath now. Clean trough of water, cool enamel, the gentle tepid stream. This is my body. Now, there's an episode where it really makes sense to do it in walking, and then you would see, which the text in itself doesn't say, that Bloom is actually wasting time going out of his way 
Far East and Coming Back. It is, in fact, a chapter that is easygoing, leisurely, relaxed. Bloom also is not very, in a way, social mood. He has two conversations and he, in a way, wants to get rid of them, doesn't want to engage. Bloom is also rather self-centered. He is aware of his own hair oil. He often thinks about himself. It's sort of almost narcissistic. And it's also full of smells, chemists, shop in, in the church, his own hair oil, and Bloom imagines at the end that he is lying in a bathtub, warm water, he looks at his own navel and at his genital, so it's almost like a returning to a, a womb. He foresaw his pale body reclined in it at full, naked, in a womb of warmth, oiled by scented melting soap softly laved. He saw his trunken limbs rip rippled over and sustained, boiled lightly upward lemon yellow, his navel bud of flesh, and saw the dark tangled curls of his bush floating, floating hair of the stream around the limp father of thousands, a languid floating flower. It is also quite obvious, if you walk in, into Cumberland Street, that this would be an ideal place to read a letter, because it's under the, the bridge and hardly anyone ever passes there. So what we also now learn, looking back, is we know now why Bloom was so concerned, briefly in the previous chapter, about this white slip of paper in his hat. This is his pseudonym, he called himself Henry Flower, and is, as we just heard, uh, exchanging letters with a woman who, whose name is, if that is her name, Martha Clifford. So they have been exchanging letters, three it seems at the time. And Bloom first worries, uh, didn't I go too far? And Martha actually says something, I called you naughty boy and I want to punish you uh, because Bloom must have said a word that was a bit offensive. He's probably trying out to tell you how far can he go, it must have been. And she sort of, in mock anger, uh, tells him off. Um, and there is a strange thing. She writes, and it seems to be a typewritten letter, I did not like that other world. What, of course, she means, as it turns out, this word. So we have a typo. I called you naughty boy because I do not like that other world. Please tell me what is the real meaning of that word. Are you not happy in your home, you poor little naughty boy? This shows, on the one hand, that, of course, Joyce reproduces mistakes that, that people make. But, of course, it suits Joyce's purpose to have a world emerging out of words. That's, after all, what literature is. And that is something, again, that's dependent on the English language, where... The world is only one letter away from word. Uh, you see, that's one of the many things that would get lost in translation or has to be done in a very forced way or has to be annotated or, or something like that. And right by return to your longing, Martha. P.S. Do tell me what kind of perfume does your wife use? I want to know. Interestingly enough is, she ends the letter saying, what perfume does your wife use? Now, he's obviously been flirting. At the same time, she knows he's married, and, and that's another thing. There's nothing else we'll ever 
know about this woman. But the question is now every woman, for that matter, perhaps every man, we don't know that, could potentially be Martha and Bloom him sometimes ask, is that perhaps her? But there's a kind of equivalent. Uh, Molly got the letter from Boylan. That was sort of then half hidden and we don't look into it. And Bloom has some kind of compensation for him. But obviously he's too cautious to engage in any relationship with, which, which would only complicate matters. But she's equal to him because she too doesn't give her address either. Yeah. Which is very strange because we they, how did they come in contact? We discover later how it happened and we, we won't go into that. But she is care of the Dolphins Barn Post mm-hmm. Office. That's her address. So it probably is that she doesn't live near Dolphins Barn no more than yep. Bloom lives near Western Row. <coughs> mm-hmm. So there's a pair of them in mm-hmm. it, and they're both being very cautious. She wants to meet after the rosary, does she? After the mass, they say. Yeah, yeah, sort of, <laughs> well, Bloom doesn't want... There, and she also includes a letter, and you get an interesting thing about uh, flowers... Bloom calls himself Henry Flower, uh, which isn't too far away. Uh, he has been sent a flower. In the end, his penis is called a flower. There's a lot of that, and a lot is done with the name. She also, Martha, refers to the beautiful name you have, Henry, which is a name he does not have. But there's an additional irony to the name, insofar as no one in Dublin in 1904 <coughs> would have used the pseudonym Henry Flower because in around 1900, there was a murder committed on the daughter. There was a a DMP man involved, and his name was Henry Flower. And his sergeant committed suicide, and he was charged with the murder of this girl, and uh, he was found not guilty, and just disappeared, probably, to Australia. We don't know where he went. Anyway, he disappeared. So everyone would have been familiar with the name Henry Flower. And if you came in with a card looking for, uh, it would be like coming in with a card for Dr. Crippen or something mm-hmm. like that in Dublin. Jack the Ripper or something. <laughs> something like that. There's this thing of Joyce again playing the trick of using a name which no one would have used mm-hmm. at all. Obviously foreigners would take it at face value and Dubliners may have a, a laugh at it. Something else comes here, and uh, that is also typical for Joyce. We have Bloom attending an ongoing mass, Mm. and it's quite clear he doesn't quite know what it is. He hasn't got the terms, that thing. Uh, He put the communion cup away. Mm -hmm. And and interestingly enough, we begin the book with Buck Mulligan, Mm. who is acting like a priest on top of a tower. So we have a parody, and we have Bloom with some kind of sympathy and curiosity Mm. watching it, not understanding it. And the real thing is somewhere in between. We never get the real mass. We get a a misunderstood one and a mocking one. And that is very often typical that we get two 
perspectives when we have to guess mm. some of you here of course would know exactly what's going on and for outsiders would, all, would also be strange well that's where you're wrong Fritz if I may say so we won't know younger people won't know because it was a Tridentine mass that was going on and uh, a lot of people under 40 if you say intro ebo adultare yeah. day they look at you as though you had two heads and when you mm -hmm. expect them to say it they're Catholics so they don't know yeah. we are moving away constantly from our understanding and we are becoming more equal in our ignorance with yeah. everyone else there's no in the distance of time. And, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I think, by the way, Joyce must have miscalculated one thing. I'm quite sure he would have thought the Latin of the church would remain. Oh, forever. yes. Uh, uh, so forever. Yeah, I yes, think uh, he would be disappointed. There's no question there. Yeah. Yes, uh, that, that is true. The priest went along by the murmuring, holding the thing in his hands. He stopped at each, took out a communion, shook a drop or two. Are they in water? Off it and put it neatly into her mouth. Her hat and head sank. Then the next one. A small old woman. The priest bent down to put it into her mouth, murmuring all the time. Latin. The next one. Shut your eyes and open your mouth. What? Corpus. Body. Corpse. Good idea, the Latin. Stupefies them first. Hospice for the dying. The other thing is that Bloom doesn't seem to understand anything. And yet he was a Catholic, nominally. And he must have received some sort of instruction. Uh, Bloom looks at what they're doing in church, uh, it seems to me always like a sort of anthropologist who's studying mm. customs, mm. and he does it with a kind of sympathy. He is not oh, he mocking does. at all. I mean, it, it isn't anything ridiculous, and as he, he appreciates, there's a community. We feel he doesn't have that. He's anthropologist also by thinking, well, it's strange, you eat the, the host, you eat Actually, bits of a corpse, corpus, mm -hmm. and uh, that's why cannibals caught on to it. And that is a kind of comparative anthropology <laughs> that was quite uh, in fashion at the time. And so there's something of that about Bloom. They don't seem to chew it, only swallow it down. Rum idea. Eating bits of a corpse, why the cannibals caught to it? Of course, there is also the hidden information in the chapter that we'll appreciate later on in the book, insofar as we, I think it's a, a sermon on St. Peter Claver that's going to be given by Father Conway, yeah. mm -hmm. whom we later meet in the book, mm -hmm. but it's given as a sort of throwaway piece of information that Bloom notices when he's entering the yeah. church, and the casual reader mm -hmm. wouldn't take much notice of it. Same notice on the door. Sermon by the very Reverend John Conmey, S.J., on St. Peter Claver and the African Mission. Save China's millions. Wonder how they explain it to the heathen Chinese. You mentioned all kinds of little uh, throw-offs. Mm. Uh, one is in church, he thinks that, and he can't quite uh, remember the name, James Carey, there were several mm. Careys and things like that, and uh, he blew the gaff from the Invincibles. Mm, mm. And there's another typical way in which Irish history is woven into it, mm. totally unknown uh, mm. foreigners, uh, the Phoenix Park murders mm, that mm, still mm. reverberated after more than 20 years. Mm. Those who took part in it were still known, but for us it takes on away historical explications. And it's again quite typical the, the way how Joyce weaves say, Irish history, of which we haven't really heard very much, into the text. Meet one Sunday after the rosary. Do not deny my request. Turn up with a veil and black bag, dusk and the light behind her. 
She might be here with a ribbon round her neck and do the other thing all the same on the sly. Their character. That fellow that turned Queen's evidence on the Invincibles, he used to receive the... Carey was his name, the communion every morning. This very church, Peter Carey. No, P Peter Claver, I'm thinking of. Dennis Carey. Carey lived round the corner from the church in Fenian Street. Yeah. He was a builder, quite, quite comfortable. But uh, it mm -hmm. came out, as far as I remember, yeah, now I'm only speaking from memory now, in the trial that he was a daily communicant. So yeah. in that church... Well, but you don't have to know. This is important. Oh, I totally agree with you. You don't have to know. It's just another layer mm -hmm. of uh, information, which when you're reading the book first, it uh, doesn't matter. Yeah. But, of course, the real hidden thing in the chapter is throwaway. That is something we can't know. No. Uh, Bloomhart doesn't understand no. what's going on. And uh, there is really where annotation, at least, is provoked. One would like mm. to know it. I want to say about that uh, French horse that's running today, Bantam Lyons said. Where the bugger is it? He rustled the pleated pages, jerking his chin on his high collar. Barber's itch. Tight collar, he loses hair. Better leave him the paper and get shut of him. You can keep it, Mr. Bloom said. Ask Hush, Gold Cup, wait, Bentham Lyons muttered. Half a mile, maximum the second. I was just going to throw it away, Mr. Bloom said. Bentham Lyons raised his eyes suddenly and leered weakly. What's that? The book has its funny elements, and the book gets funnier and funnier the more we interact with it. That's it. But again, that isn't much help if somebody look here, and uh, of course they don't laugh if they read it for the first time. But so I mean, you, you can laugh at McCoy, and not at McCoy, but, but at Bloom's thoughts about McCoy. Mm -hmm. McCoy thinking that he's a great friend of Bloom, yeah. and thinking that he's very smart, working his way round to get a loan of the valise, mm -hmm. yeah. and Bloom anticipating him all the time mm -hmm. and talking about his wife with her squeaky voice and what happened at the last concert and of course Bloom looking at the woman going to get up on the car mm -hmm. it's all too human she raised a gloved hand to her hair in came Hoppy having a wet drawing back his head and gazing far from beneath his veiled eyelids he saw the bright fawn skin shine in the glare the braided drums clearly I can see today Moisture about gives long sight, perhaps. Talking of one thing or another. Lady's hand. Which side will she get up? McCoy is also a bit of a bore. I mean, not all Irishmen are witty mm. or, uh, by definition, and he's a bit of a bore. And he tells the story of how he heard about the death of Dignam, which is totally uninteresting, and then Bloom. And this is an interesting passage. Watches the woman. Several things are going on. His fingers are in the pocket, and he mm. wonders about the flower and the letter. He would like to read the letter. He hasn't done so, so far. He has to listen to McCoy and make sort of receptive noises, mm. occasionally yes, things like, but he's not really, and he's watching and, and being frustrated. So many things are going on at the same time, and it's quite interesting how Joyce manages to convey the illusion that we take part in all of them mm. at the same time. And he said, the sad thing about our poor friend Paddy. What Paddy, I said. Poor little Paddy Dignam, he said. Off to the country. Broadstone, probably. High brown boots with laces dangling. Well-turned foot. What is he foostering over that change for? Sees me looking. Eye out for other fellow always. Good fall back. Two strings to her bow. Why, I said. What's wrong with him, I said. Proud, rich, silk stockings. Uh, yes, Mr. Bloom said. He moved a little to the side of McCoy's talking head. Getting up in a minute. 
What's wrong with him, he said? He's dead, he said. And faith, he filled up. Is it Paddy Dignam, I said? I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I was with him no later than Friday last or Thursday, was it, in the arch? Yes, he said, he's gone. He died on Monday, poor fellow. Watch, watch, silk flesh, rich stockings, white watch. Well, talking about that and talking about the time, I take it it's about between ten and half ten. He has to get up to Leinster Street, which is only a couple of hundred yards anyway, so he gets up there in a minute or so. But he has to have his bath, dress again, come out and get a tram to Sandy Mount. Now, getting a tram to Sandy Mount would take, uh, being generous, a quarter of an hour. And the funeral is at 11 o'clock. And yet he's, he doesn't yeah. seem to be in any hurry. He's, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> certainly when we see him anticipating, relaxing in his bath, yeah, yeah. he's not a fellow saying, well, I have to, <laughs> I have to get this done yeah. quickly. And yet he arrives mm-hmm. in time for the yeah. funeral. That is again now the link to the Homeric side. Uh, Joyce called it Lotus Eaters mm. privately. And that is really the first of the adventures in the Odyssey. It takes up only a a few lines, it's not an extended mm. one, where they were driven off. They had to go north, and the, the bad winds took them away, and they came to the place of the lotus eaters. Lotus was a kind of fruit that made you happy and forgetting everything and, and that kind of thing. And so what Joyce takes over is, as I say, all kinds of things that are relaxed. He thinks of somebody floating in the Dead Sea. There is a chapter full of exotic smells and things like that. He's relaxing in the bath. He thinks the Latin hypnotizes Mm. them. He thinks of the effect that advertisements have. So uh, this is in a way the modern equivalent of Mm. the lotus flowers, which also in the Greek is related to forgetting. Mm. And this chapter is also about forgetting. As it turns out, Bloom will in fact not return, as he Mm, promised. This is in a way how the Homeric thing, not as an equivalent in action, but as the motive of having an easy life. The companions of Odysseus had to be forcefully brought back to the ship to get on with the job. So this adventure is one to give in to seduction. It's a, a different sort of danger, the danger of having too good a life. Not meet me, meet me. 